Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Dairy Pod. I'm Rory McDonald from the Dairy Australia Farm Team. Today we've got the second instalment of Frank Micken's recent discussion with Karen Romano of Gipps Dairy on silage production. As anyone who listened to the previous podcast will know, Frank has a wealth of knowledge to share on the growing, cutting and ensiling of spring pasture. In this episode, he'll share his thoughts on some of the technical aspects of harvesting and storage of silage, including wilting rates, silage machinery, compaction and density, face management and plenty more things as well. Before you wrap your first bale or seal your first pit this spring, make sure you listen to what Frank and Karen have to say. Thanks for joining us again today, Frank. That's all right, Karen. Uh, my pleasure. And hi to the, all the farmers out there that might be listening. Well, welcome again, Frank, uh, for a discussion about silage. Um, today, we're, our real focus is about harvesting quality pasture silage, so getting that pasture into the stack or bale. So a good starting point, I think, is perhaps the stage of cutting. So how important is the stage of cutting for quality silage? The stage of cutting is very, very important, uh, as we discussed last time, but um, ideally, uh, ideally, we want to be cutting this stuff at, uh, just before or at, at canopy closure and certainly not too far after. So uh, in the spring, uh, that might be uh, if you're the, the green leaf stage type stuff, we're uh, looking at something like two and a half to, or thereabouts of, of um, green leaves. So if we're cutting at that stage, is there anything else I need to consider before I bring out the mower um, with the pasture or crop I'm going to cut? You should be planning ahead, uh, Karen, in terms of, um, you know, we've had a fairly wet winter in places and anyone on the flats, uh, you, you might have trouble getting onto those flats and you definitely want, do not want to be going there on a tractor, you just leave deep ruts, which will, you know, you'll never recover from, the ruts won't recover anyway. Uh, and you'll get dirt and, and, and dirty water and, and so on, mud into the soil, and that's just basically inoculating that with the bad knock, um, bad bacteria if you like. Definitely try not to cut too late because, uh, you know, if you cut your paddock and you're picking it up and, and, it's, and the paddock's or the grass behind is sort of yellow, uh, or even worse, white. That means you've left it way, way too long and you've lost probably one or two leaves. So um, you've probably lost 20 or, 20 or 40 odd percent of your, of your grass pasture growth just you know on that rotation anyway. And it's going to take a lot longer to recover. Sometimes, like I've noticed, particularly in the morning, there's a fair bit of dew on pasture. Um, is that going to influence um, the, the timing of when I cut my pasture? Yeah, look, so ideally, I've always recommended trying to cut when the dew's lifted or nearly lifted. So there's one, you know, something like one, that, depending on your <coughs> excuse me, crop yield, there'd be one to, uh, one to two tonne of water per every hectare. That's a lot of water. So you're best to try and leave your, your crop standing to let the sun dry most of that off um, before you cut it. If you cut it with the dew on it, all you're doing is trapping that dew and that dew has to be wilted, you know, has to be evaporated off your life before the plant starts to uh, wilt too much. So ideally something like mid-morning, every day is gonna be a bit different. And if you're a contractor, you're probably telling me you got a buggery anyway, but uh, they'll just go when they're going to go, but ideally mid-morning if you can. And just touching on contractors, um, it, what if I've got a, a mower myself and I'm reliant on my contractor to, to, to bail it up or um, to put into the silage pit, um, is that important to match my mowing to harvesting operations? Yeah, definitely you need to be, um, uh, there's three important rules for contractors and yourself. First rule is communicate, second rule is communicate, third rule is communicate. So always be in touch with your contractor, uh, let you know what you're up to. Um, don't, don't, you know, don't go out there and knock half the paddocks or the number of paddocks over and say, look, I've got the stuff on the way down, mate, I want you here tomorrow or the day after. You need to be talking uh, you know, a week or two weeks ahead with this guy and try and working together. So be in touch continually uh, and work with him as to when you're going to cut that paddock. Uh, having said that, um, 
you know, contractor will come in, he'll, he'll have a, a double ganger or a double gang or even a triple gang mower, and he'll get around that paddock. By the time you've got your mower on, he's probably, done, he's probably mowed half your paddocks. So just consider that, even though it's going to cost you money. Uh, but yeah, consider that from, from the speed of getting the stuff on the ground. Mm. And when it's on the ground, um, is there a window on um, how long I can leave it there? I know we need to uh, get to specific wilt rates, but do you have a target time frame? Karen, uh, once again, ideally, you know, we'd like the stuff to be in the in the um, bale or in the in the stack itself. Yeah, you know, within 24 to 48 hours. Not always possible uh, in early spring. Um, and we know, and, and I re reinforce this now more and more with some work that's been done over in Europe uh, and, and they're finding where the stuff is on the ground, longer than two days, intakes drop to bilio and correspondingly milk, milk, in, uh, milk production would drop uh, similarly, so quite a, quite a bit. Not always possible, Karen, in early in the season, but with the use of a couple of bits of equipment, uh, you can reduce that uh, wilting time to bilio. So uh, probably the two... Two bits of equipment would be one uh, is the tether. Uh, some people would have a tether rake from the old days. These days they tend to be more tethers, I think, um, than tether rakes, but regardless. Uh, and so what I recommend, and once, once again, based on a lot of research, the sooner you can ted this stuff that's on the ground, the sooner you can ted this after mowing, Karen, the quicker it's going to start wilting and the quicker the rate of wilting. So it's actually 50 to 80% higher rate of wilting by getting in there within you know, one, to, one to two hours if you can. Yet, so a lot of guys will cut in the morning or, uh, or, or ted the next day or ted later in the, in the day, but as soon as you can get in there with that tether, uh, get that tedding done. Uh, and given we want to get to the dry manage, we'll talk about in a minute, as soon as we want to get to, um, and it's early and we haven't got a lot of stinking hot dry weather or hot weather around, um, you know, more often than not, we're going to have to ted the next morning. Once again, once the dew's lifted. The second bit of equipment Karen and I started to allude to was the, the mower con conditioners. So the secrets there is basically to um, try to use a flail type or a tine type. That'll tend to leave a fluffier row behind the mower conditioner. And the other very important thing is leave that wind row as wide as you can get that. So almost to fill the 80% uh, at least if you can of the, the swath behind you to um, speed up that uh, rate of water loss from that swath. Great advice in increasing that surface area as well. Now, when we're talking about wilting, um, what's the risk, Frank, if I overwilt uh, my forage material? What can happen then? Well, obviously, you know, it's a pretty rare problem. Uh, this is a problem you're going to have you know, mid to late October, early November. You've cut it and it's, you might have tended it and it's come in stinking hot and it's, and it's dried out too much. Um, yeah, that's, that's not ideal because you're going to have a bale that's very light and fluffy and it'll be hard to get the air out. Not much you can do about that. Just be aware that in later in the season, if it does come in stinking hot, um, you know, get out there and start bailing or chopping sooner than you would think. Now, if it's into a pit, uh, not always possible. Uh, but I've written this and stuff I've written in the past, but you might be able to sneak into the next door paddock and grab a, a load of wet, wet earth stuff or stuff that's not quite dry enough yet. Um, might be later today's material or tomorrow morning's material uh, and just mix that in with the, your shandy that you like or put layer for layer of the dry versus the wet stuff and that'll the moisture out of the wet earth stuff will tend to migrate to some extent into the, the dry earth stuff. Uh, now let's talk um, a little bit about those target dry matters, uh, Frank, uh, for pit versus bale. Yep, so pits, we've always recommended around about 30 to 35% um, you know, dry matter. But if you've got it, that's for the longer chop silages, or any silages really, apart from bales. But the uh, precision chop machine, if you've got them on the, on the job, uh, you can probably sneak up to you know, maybe up to 40% dry matter. 
Uh, the reason being, Karen, that they are shorter chop legs, so, <coughs> excuse me, two to three to four centimetre maybe, and um, they'll pack down a lot more and get a lot more air out, being shorter. The longer chop stuff, harder to pack down. The bale silage, um, somewhere in that 40% uh, dry matter up to about 55, or sorry, 50% dry matter. If you get caught, yeah, sneaking into 55 is okay, as long as you get that plastic on as soon as you can after. But yeah, we aim for about 40 to 50% dry matter. And if you go too wet, too much wetter, it's <clears throat> too much wetter than the 40% dry matter, Karen, uh, you could end up with a poorer type fermentation, too much water in there. Yeah. It's strange, I know, compared to the pit stuff, but with males, we know, you know, if you're looking at 36 or 37%, 38% uh, uh, dry matter in a bale, you will actually have um, a different type of fermentation in mm. a lot of cases. And sagging perhaps in the bales as well, Frank. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about techniques. Like dry matter seems pretty critical. Uh, so how am I going to estimate that um, dry matter? What, what are some of your favourite ways of, or quick ways of doing it, if you like, in the field? Yeah, I suppose the, the thing that most farmers and contractors tend to, tend to use is this hand squeeze test. So, um, you know, you need to chop the stuff up into two to four centimetre lengths, two to three, four centimetre lengths if you can. Get a handful, squeeze it as tight as you can for at least a minute. And I mean, don't keep looking at it. Hold it tight. And then after about a minute, open it up. Now, if you open your hand out and it's in your hands quite wet, uh, it's, it's too wet. But if you open your hand out, there's a little bit of moisture on there, somewhere near that 30% dry matter. And if you open your hand out and the and the and the ball springs apart fairly quickly with no moisture in your hand, you're somewhere you're somewhere near that 40% dry matter. The other technique, and it's a bit more cumbersome, is to grab the sample or some samples, representative samples. So not not a patch that's got a heap of cave wood in it or not the lower end of the paddock sort of thing, but uh, some of that's fairly representative and, and use a microwave oven test. So that involves weighing out a, a, a certain weight. So it's the easiest thing to use 100% um, weight, 100% gram, uh, put it in a microwave for a certain period of time, take it out and then put it back in and take it until there's no change in weight. But after your first initial weighing, uh, make sure you've got a half a glass of water in there or three quarters of a glass of water in there. Keep replacing that because if you don't, um, your wife will shoot you because your, your, your uh, microwave is going to catch a light at some stage. <laughs> Let alone stink out the house at the same time, Frank. Um, good messaging there. Yeah, All right. right. Sorry, Karen. There's um, moisture dehydrators, I think they're called. Moisture dehydrators. I haven't anything to do with them, but a lot of contractors now use them. They're trays. Uh, and I think they're only about three or four hundred bucks, if that. Uh, and they'll try and they'll dry, you know, three, four, five trays at once. So for the contractor, you can go to different farms or different parts of the farm and, and put a heap of these things in. Now, my understanding is if they're set right after about, uh, I think it's four or four, four hours, I think it is, they're within about 1% of what they're going to be if you leave them there for 24 hours or whatever the time is. So they could be quite useful. But the... So let's wander a little bit further into this uh, compaction. You, you mentioned earlier about um, chopping the material and um, compacting it as tightly as possible. Uh, tell us why that's so critical and important for high quality silage, Frank. Look, as, as you've probably heard time and time again, air is, which is actually oxygen out of the air, is the enemy of silage. And the reason being is that the bacteria that you're in there, you've picked up a whole heap of bacteria. We're trying to get the right conditions now for the right sort of bacteria to win the fight, if you like. And so we're looking for a lactic acid type bacteria to win that fight. Now, they need to get as rid, you know, they need to be an oxygen-free um, uh, situation. So getting in there and packing the stuff as tight as you can, uh, and the shorter chop length helps, uh, you get as much air out as you can. So there'll always be a bit of air 
air there and the bacteria and these other bacteria that are in there will use that air until all that oxygen is used, they will keep um, using the energy in your silage, you like. So they'll be breaking down the silage and you're reducing your energy and dry matter. So the more air you've got in there, the longer this is going to happen or recur. Uh, and so the lower your quality will be and, and you'll have higher dry matter losses over time. So, uh, and so, you know, you definitely do not want to um, put bales out in the paddock today and don't wrap them until tomorrow sort of thing. You want to get that plastic on as soon as you can within reason. As quick as possible. Let's talk a little bit about um, uh, management of our pit um, and when we've got delivery of um, silage coming to the pit and um, uh, what, what some of the, some advice that you give to people when you've got multiple uh, uh, wagons coming in at different intervals. Um, tell us a little bit about the importance of actually getting that evenness. It's a bit of a nexus point if you like or it can be a very big point of danger if you're not careful. So you've got tractor or tractors on the stack rolling going backwards and forward, backwards and forwards and hopefully you've only got a cart rolling up, you know, turning up every now and then. So that cart goes up over the stack or there's forks used to spread the material over the stack. That, that ideally that layer of stuff should be left around about you know, 15 to 20 centimetres thick and not much thicker. Now when you're using a fork sometimes, you know, blokes will go up the top and dump the whole fork load on the top, they'll try and spread it as much as they can as they're coming up or going down or out the other side. Uh, and, but they might end up with a big block just drop off. Now, if you don't spread that block out, uh, when the tractor comes along to roll, and the tractor will come along and go up over that block, push it down. And what will happen is there'll be, and you know, it's been proven experimentally, uh, there's a lot of air trapped in that block, that big block of silage. So we're trying to get this as even we can over the whole of the stack at 15 centimetres depth in terms of the stack. Um, and, and roll. Now, the other big secret to rolling is, and I've seen this many times, as many people would have, you know, a guy will get on the tractor and go from one side to the other and he'll do that five times, pat himself on the back and say, video, roll the stack. He's only half rolled that stack. He's better off to have gone across that stack two times or three times at the most, but done that slowly. So he's given the time, given time for the weight of the tractor to be pushed down into the stack. Go too quick, the weight passes over without doing too much compaction code. So the slower, the better in terms of the rolling but keeping an eye on who's, who's coming up behind you and so on, of course. Just a little bit more on that stack management. So I've cut my, my paddocks today and I've um, filled my stack, but I've probably got more silage on the ground to go in that same stack tomorrow. Um, what are the things to be aware of when, um, you know, I've downed tools uh, that night, I come back to uh, put more in. What sort of things do I need to think about when I'm adding that to the stack? So Karen, you've asked the, um, in terms of, coming back to continue tomorrow for, um, for some more stuff to go on top of the stack. So look, the first thing I would say is that last bloke who's doing the rolling, um, just let him roll a little bit longer to get as much compaction as you can. Try and catch up with the rest of the day. Just try and roll the stack as much as you can. Now I've often said this, and I know a lot of people don't do it, but if you could actually drag a bit of plastic over that stack now with a few tyres around the outside, uh, that'll minimise the amount of heating up that's going to happen overnight. It will heat, but not as much. So if you can imagine that stack now, you've gone away, even though you've rolled it well, you've gone away, and what is, that stack is starting to ferment. And, one of the, and so what happens in fermentation, carbon dioxide, water, vapour, uh, or water coming off air and heat. And without that plastic there, the heat just goes up in the air. And we all know what's going to replace that cold, that, that hot air coming out of the stack. Cold air is going to go into the stack. So it's like a convection if you like going around and around all night. So my feeling is uh, with the bit of plastic drag over, uh, and not 100% sealed around the edge by any means, just on the whole of the plastic there will minimise or slow down that convection heating overnight. Uh, if you, so 
you do or don't do that. So overnight, uh, you come back the next morning, if you roll the stack really well, and that's then they're best to do that the night before, don't go back and re-roll the stack again in the morning. No need to do that. As long as you've done the job properly the night before. Because what you're going to do is push more air into that stack. So uh, just get back into the job and, and, and finish it off. Frank, how do you know whether stack or bale has been compacted enough? Okay, so the stack should be tight enough, packed well enough, if uh, when the tractor goes over the material, you've done the rolling, you've done it well. So when that tractor goes over the material, the, uh, the, the porridge that's in the stack will not spring up. It will come back, but not much. Uh, if the tractor disappears into the stack and comes back up, it's nowhere near enough. So very little springing from behind the, the wheel as it's moved, moved forward. And with the, the bale, uh, you should not be able to you know, get on the side of the bale, push your fingers into the bale. And ideally, you should not be able to get any further, your fingers any further than, than your fingernails or your first knuckle. If you can go halfway in, your fingers halfway in, ideally, that's not tight enough. There'd be a lot of air in that bale. So Frank, we've compacted our stack um, and our bale and we've got them to the, the point where we know they're as tight as possible. Let's talk about sealing those bales or, or stacks now and the products that are available uh, as that barrier against oxygen. Okay, Karen, let's start with the stacks. Um, probably these days, most stacks are covered with a um, what we call a black-white film. Uh, and that could be, oh, I don't know, about 80 or 100 micron up to 150, maybe a bit thicker. So the thicker stuff, the better, ideally. Uh, now, with the black white film, um, make sure the white is facing up. So that's to reflect the heat. Now, some people put it the other way around, but definitely white's got to be up. Um, and, and get as much weight, if you're, if you're still using tyres, get as much weight over that stack with the tyres, touching as much as you can. But the important thing, more important than anything, is to try and seal the edge of those, of those sheets. Try and make them airtight. Now, that might be just going around with some um, dirt or washed sand. Uh, not, not washed sand, probably um, sand with a bit of clay in it. So that will seal, if you like, stop the air going in under the edge. Because if you just put tyres around the edge, and I know a lot of people can say, oh, bugger you, Mick, I'm going to put two tyres on the ground. Two tyres on the ground, out on the ground. But the, air, the air will still get in, will come in under that stack. And especially when you've got wind, uh, the wind, you now the aeroplane limbs, because the, the, the vacuum created under that wind. So when the wind goes up over the stack, it's tending to suck in oxygen uh, between that plastic and the ground or the plastic and the grass, uh, even when you might have two tyres there. So in terms of the other way of sealing those edges, which is probably a better way to do this, is to get onto some sausage, uh, sausage stocks, and you can buy those, and various companies are selling those, but Solar Stock's one of those, but, and fill them up with some um, washed sand or something, a little pea gravel. Uh, fill them up as tight as you can, as much as you can, and just put two rows around those, around the base. So when you drop them in the ground, I'll tend to fill the indentations on the ground. And I say two rows because um, if you go and just bug them end to end, there'll be a gap, if you like, uh, where the air can get in between the ends, the two ends. So then the second row would just make sure you, um, you're covering off on that button, the butting of the first row. So very good seal, very easy to put them down, put them away um, and so on. And um, yeah, put them out of, out of the sunlight when you're finished. Put them on some pallets or something, but get them out of the sunlight. They should last you know, quite a few years. Uh, now, the other system for covering, uh, and there's probably two or three of the other classes system is, is if you like, um, it's a system called, what's well, Silo Stop 2 step, if you like, and it's basically an oxygen barrier film. Now this, this film is very, very, it's food basic, food grade, sorry, food grade plastic, and it will not, let very, very, very little air go through that. Very little air. 
very large, it's only 40 micron, uh, and once you put that on the stack, very quickly you'll see that the, um, the, the plush you actually start to get sucked into the stack, you know, whether it's footprints or you know, uh, wood, footprints or wheel tracks or whatever. So what's happened, the fermentation's already started and it's pulling the oxygen out of the air and then producing carbon dioxide, water and heat and so on. But you'll see this happening with this stuff that's said good in keeping the oxygen and not allowing the oxygen in. Of course, it'll come out on the sides. So now we need to protect, protect this stuff. So I think try to avoid working on it as much as you can. It's not, it's not UV treated, so it'll break down sunlight. And it's only 40 microns, so you'll soon put a hoof through that. Uh, so you need to cover that with black white film. Once again, white coming up and seal the edge as well as you can. Uh, as well as you can. Uh, or the other part of the two-step system is the um, oxygen barrier film current plus a uh, woven tarp to go over the top of that. So that's also supplied, not cheap, but it's got a lot of weight in it and that tends to hold the plastic down. Uh, and then they supply the socks and the socks, you only need to run a few socks up over the top, you know, up and over the both sides of the stack and you know, maybe one or two rows across the top and so on. You don't need to have them touching because you're stopping the air coming in from the sides and so on. There are products out there, to be fair. Uh, there are other products out there um, that aren't probably good in terms of the oxygen seal side of it, uh, the clear plastic. That's not really a 100% oxygen seal or, you know, quite a, it's not as good as the solar top two tough, but it should still do the job provided you, look, the most important thing with any sealing of stack is stop that air getting in and just put the extra effort into sealing the edges of those stacks with something that's going to stop the air going in under that plastic. We've spoken a lot about um, the, the pit or the stack. Uh, what's your recommendations in relation to bales? Yep, so bales should have a minimum of four, four layers of plastic, certainly down in southern Victoria, uh, maybe more up further north. Uh, anyone listening from further up north, you, you probably want to be aiming for the six. Uh, for us down here, we can actually get away with, we can actually get away with black plastic. Uh, we can get away with that down here without it breaking down too much, but um, most people tend to go for the lighter colours, Karen. And now down here, um, four layers at least, and um, six layers up north, perhaps. Um, I think a lot of people, and that's with the old stuff, which tend to be 50, 50, 55% stretched. A lot of plastic now are 70% stretch. Uh, and even though they are sort of reluctantly agree four layers would be enough, those companies would uh, recommend six layers with that 70% stretch plastic. Now, that plastic is very good plastic. It's, you can pull it really tight, it comes in tight on the bale, and you know it's usually treated and so on and so on. There's different types of plastic. There's different companies produce different types of plastic. You know, there's a clear film out there, believe it or not, clear film. Um, now, what I would recommend for people to put even down here in the southern part of Victoria, Gippsland and southwest Victoria, if you're likely to carry stuff over or you want to carry stuff over from one year to the next, make sure now where they are, where, they, where they've come from and so on, know the quality of it, but put on six layers. Those six layers will give you, you know, should guarantee you almost two years of um, plastic of silage, you know, being well sealed and not deteriorating over two years. If you've got a stalky crop, uh, like a loosened crop, six layers. If you're going to be picking the bales up and transporting them to, you know, a fair way, six layers. Uh, cereal crop, if for the guys up north, if you're doing a cereal crop in the, in the bales, six layers at least. Frank, if I noticed a, a hole in my bale or my stack, how important is it to, to repair that uh, and quickly? Karen, the minute, you, the minute that you've got a hole in, in that stack from whatever, you know, cattle or kids or foxes or whatever, um, in a stack or, or the bales have been whole for whatever reason, it's important, very, very important to seal those things up as quick as you can see them. So don't look at them one week, so I must go back, you know, two weeks time and go that or you know, fix up. Go back as soon as you can, because what's happening at the moment, air is getting in, 
the soil is starting to break down, carbon dioxide, heat and water vapour coming off and it's just going further and further in and around that stack or around that bale. So that's just like a cancer growing. Get on top as soon as you can. And when I'm covering that um, the bale or stack, how important is it to use like with like products in terms of colour? Yeah, so there's specific tapes out available from the companies that sell the plastics. Uh, and uh, so the important things there, Karen, is for a lighter colour plastic, you know, make sure you use a lighter colour film, your tape. You don't want a green tape on a black film, firstly. Secondly, make sure where you're patching the hole, it's clean. It's cool, not stinking hot, cool, uh, and free of water. And, um, and I also find that cutting the patch to the length that you need it to be to cover that hole well and truly cover that hole, cut that, let it shrink, and then put that on and make sure you've smoothed any wrinkles out. So, you know, sometimes with these wrinkles, air can actually get in through that wrinkle and still continue into that hole. Frank, what sort of safety um, messages have you got for people when they're um, setting themselves up for, for silage season? Karen, just looking from the point of view before we start the job, um, we need to be you know, having a look, good look at those paddocks. So if you've got is it barbed wire or um, even uh, uh, electric wire um, out there or, or plain wire, certainly don't want barbed wire. Any of those things are going to wrap around a, a pickup or a mower or um, tedders or, or, or stock forages when they're going through. Um, another big Issue um, could be wombat holes or other holes that are in the paddock that you can't see. So, you know, poor old yourself or um, the farmer or the contractor flies along and bingo, he's into a damn hole and, you know, all sorts of things can happen there. None of them any good. So mark them and not just one side of the hole. You need to put the pig on either side or actually four sides of that hole or that dip in the ground or whatever it might be. It might be, you know, and there might be hidden wet areas too. Um, certainly harrows, we, we've all heard these stories, you know, I heard of a story where the farmer went, contracting, had two tyres done, going over a set of harrows just on the side of the paddock. But, you know, able to be mowed, but he went across there and two, two flat tyres. Uh, another thing, you know, we know about the low hanging trees, you see them, but you don't see the limbs uh, and the decent sized branches that might have already dropped onto the ground under those trees uh, and so on. So definitely mark, mark them or get them out of the way, best, preferably. Uh, another thing out in the paddock itself, uh, would be stumps. There might be some stumps, hopefully not these days, but there'll be some paddocks where there might be stumps or rocks that you don't see until you hit them. You know, it's too late then. So mark them, well and truly mark them so you can see them uh, before you get there. Uh, and, and maybe make sure your tracks are up to scratch. You know, you're paying, say, a contractor with a forage harvester, you're paying him, I don't know, six, six or eight hundred bucks an hour now. Uh, and the cart's going backwards and forward. You do not want that cart hitting holes and have to be, you know, going half the speed if they can be, that track can be graded properly and gates taken off or widened or whatever, graded, the track's graded, so that track can, that tractor and cart can get along pretty quickly without, without danger. And, and obviously be able to pass another cart if it's coming the other way. Those, those sort of things need to be taken into consideration too, Karen. But that's sort of some of the things, and there'll be other things we haven't thought of. Um, the other thing, and you can't avoid this, uh, just be aware of it. Though sometimes in some areas, to camp north, you might uh, knock over a quail or three. Uh, they'll be dead. And they'll be or rabbits or foxes sometimes, snakes. They'll be dead, and you probably won't see them, but they'll end up in the stack. Um, and, but they could be potential for botulism down the track. So probably not a lot you can do with that, but be aware of that. Yeah, so that, that'll cover you in terms of before you get into the job, Karen. Frank, thank you so much for your time today and um, the wealth of knowledge that you have and, um, and then shared with us today is just has just been gold um, and we really appreciate the time that you've spent um, chatting with me today. 
Uh, but it's my pleasure, Karen. I've actually put an order in for about an inch and a half of rain after the soil is off, so it just keeps you going through into the summer, right? Thanks again to Karen and Frank for the second episode of this two-part series. Frank's wealth of knowledge on silage is quite amazing and we're really lucky to have him join us on the podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, make sure you have a listen to part one of the series, episode 32 of Dairy Pod, where Frank talks about preparing for silage season. If you want to learn more, head to the dairyaustralia.com.au website and have a look at our feed-based section. And for those really wanting to upskill, Feeding Pasture for Profit is a great course for farmers for improving grass growing and utilisation. In addition, top fodder silage is currently being redeveloped and updated and will be available in the coming months across the industry. Contact your local RDP office for details on when these courses are planned to be next held. Well, that's it for this episode. You can find other Dairy Pod episodes, as always, on SoundCloud or subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify as well. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>